Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. As the world continues to work through the restrictions put in place to battle the spread of the coronavirus, new areas of concern continue to emerge. While we've seen the volatility in the oil market bring about historic shifts in the outlook for that industry, we're now hearing more and more about concerns surrounding the protein industry, specifically pork, beef, chicken. On Sunday, April 26th, Tyson Foods was very upfront regarding their concerns about the food supply chain in a letter published in the New York Times. John Tyson, chairman of the board of Tyson Foods, wrote the following, quote, as pork, beef, and chicken plants are being forced to close, even for short periods of time, millions of pounds of meat will disappear from the supply chain. As a result, there will be limited supply of our products available in grocery stores until we are able to reopen our facilities that are currently closed. That's a pretty scary statement from one of the U.S.'s biggest meat processors. To dig through the news and uncover the facts about the food supply chain, I'm joined by Micah Martin, Diamond Hills Housing and Consumer Commodities Analyst. Micah has been with the firm since 2014 and came to the firm with a varied background, including spending time as an English teacher in China. As we work through these unprecedented times, I ask for your understanding for any sound quality issues that may arise. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Micah Martin. Micah, thanks for joining me today. Uh, in the introduction, I referenced some pretty concerning comments from John Tyson, the chairman of the board of Tyson Foods, uh, that were made in the New York Times this past Sunday, April 26th. What is your take uh, on his comments, and what level of concern do you have around the protein supply chain? Yeah, I think I think generally, I think his take is correct. I mean, it's a it's definitely it's definitely a concern. Um, the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, has led to dramatically lower production at, at plants for a variety of reasons. Um, just yesterday, uh, April 27th, both pork and beef production was down 32% year on year, which are which are huge numbers. You don't you don't ever really see see numbers like that. And um, as of now, it seems like their production numbers keep keep dropping. And um, I think I think you know Mr. Tyson's comments in the New York Times were uh, you know good. You want to you want to bring attention to it. I think it's a lot. Not a lot of people are sitting around counting how many pork processing plants are open uh, in their daily life. But uh, we've been paying attention to it for a while as as the processing plants. And maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later. But our, our key bottleneck in the food meat production system. So it's definitely. A good thing to bring up. Um, there's just a lot of different, you know, different things going on. He references the the plant closures that are taking place. Some of them are being forced by the state and local governments, as as a number of these plants are locations of a significant number of cases in different counties. But you also have other other issues that are causing production to slow down because of the virus. You have worker absenteeism. Workers are, are afraid of getting the virus and, and they'd rather not come to work than, than risk getting it. And you also have social distancing. Uh, I've, I've had the opportunity to visit a few processing plants and uh, it's relatively close quarters. You're not six feet away from each other going down the, the processing line. So any attempt to space out people also, also slows down production. So it's definitely uh, something to be aware of and, and that we're, we're thinking about. As far as the latter part of your question, the level of concern, I would say it's um, moderate to moderately high, I guess, on a, uh, on a relative basis. But 
But with that said, there's a there's a wide range of possible outcomes. If you know, if no more pork or beef plants close, and, and those that have closed are able to get everything all clean and come back online, this this won't be this won't be a, a very big deal. Um, in you know, looking three months from now, uh, but you know, if you have more plant closures and production drops from you know down 30% year on year to down. 50% and and the workers, you know, would rather not come back to work or um, you have other further major plant shutdowns without any, you know, end in sight for for the COVID-19 cases at these plants. It, it could be a it could be a material um, issue in, in the next uh, over the next month that, that starts appearing. Um, so it's uh, I have a little bit more in my freezer at home meet the normal, um, but I'm not going and buying everything I can. So a kind of moderate, I guess, moderately high, I guess, level of concern. So I think uh, I'm going to make a rash assumption that uh, the majority of listeners, as well as myself, uh, don't necessarily understand the mechanics around uh, how meat or, or protein products get from point A to point B. So let's take a step back and, and provide some background on the protein industry, if, if you will. As far as I know, you know, farmers raise cattle, chickens, etc. And then I go to the grocery store and it's there. Uh, now there's a lot that goes into the process of getting the food onto, onto the table. Um, can you provide just a, just a high level understanding of how the process works from, you know, inception to, to getting to the grocery? I've had this conversation with my family before and not a lot of people <laughs> uh, are aware, super aware of this. It's, I think it's pretty interesting. Most people probably don't, but the interesting thing about the, and we'll just use pork, is every every meat a protein is a little bit slightly different in how they are structured. We'll just use pork as an example, just to keep it just to keep it simple. In the pork market, you you have three pieces of the supply chain. You have all the farmers, as you mentioned, then you have the processing plants, then you have all of the customers, um, which to the processing plants are grocery stores. The Walmarts and Kroger's of the world are, are big buyers. You have um, restaurants, McDonald's, uh, and others buy, buy a lot of meat. And you also have export, um, export customers as well. And both the farmers and the customers, there's a, there are a lot of them. You know, there's, there's a, you know, I, don't, I don't know the exact number, hundreds, thousands of, of farmers and hundreds, thousands, maybe not, you know, depending on how you define customers. But the interesting thing is the, the processing plant in the pork industry is, is the key bottleneck of the, of the supply chain. They buy from the farmers and then they'll sell to the, sell to the customers. And in, in pork, it's, a, it's very, very consolidated. So there's 11 plants in the U.S. processing plants. They account for over 50% of all U.S. pork production, just in 11 11 plants, and there's 26 that account for over 80% of the pork production in the United States. So it's, it's extremely consolidated. And what's happening is some of the, the state and local governments are, are causing, because of the number of viruses at these facilities, are requiring them to shut down. And so you're leaving um, a, a big uh, hole in the in the supply chain for protein, and um, we can talk, and, and it goes for you know in different details or different areas of that 
as you like, but that's generally the high level. There are variations. I mean, sometimes some of the farmers are independent farmers and they'll sell to, to different packing plants and some are, uh, some packing plants own all their own hogs and they grow them themselves. So then they're more vertically integrated. So there, you know, there's a wide variety of different versions of this, but generally we have a lot of farmers, only a few processing plants that do a lot of the work. They'll sometimes even, you know, put the meat in the case, put the price on it so that all, you know, it gets the Kroger and all the work our Kroger does is put it, put it on the shelf and the packing plants are key, key cogs to the food system. And then you have a significant amount of, of different customers. So watching the packing plants is the key to, to seeing how the food supply and, and meat production is going gonna, is gonna to go. So if we think about it, you know, we've, we've been working from home since, since March 13th. Uh, we had a disaster recovery plan that was put in place and implemented on, on I think it was March 12th. So uh, really no, no major hiccups in moving 100 people out of the office to working from home. Do the processing plants, which as you mentioned earlier, are kind of a bottleneck, do they have uh, disaster recovery plans? Not anticipating maybe something like this, but tornado, whatever it may be. Yeah, I would say, I mean, they definitely have a disaster plan. Everybody, you know, everybody in the industry knows that if your, if your plant, plants close, it's, it's a problem. It's very much a just-in-time process and very important to keep things moving. So I would definitely say they have a disaster plan, you know, and they're generally historically pretty resilient to macro shocks, recessions, things like that. But this is definitely a, a different different situation. I know that of the different uh, protein companies I've either talked with or, or read uh, their commentary, a lot of them have been, you know, are pretty aware, have been pretty aware of this and have been thinking about it, and having a task force and, and thinking about things since since January. So there's been an effort to do that and, uh, you know, try to to deal with this. And you know, some of that is, you know, some of them have infrared uh, temperature checks going into the the plants. Some I've read have plastic shields up at the break tables so you can eat without, you know, someone else, you know, breathing or uh, uh, being close to you. You have, you know, trying to space people out in the plant. There's all kinds of different, different things that people are, people are doing to try to, to deal with this. But it's just, it's frankly extremely challenging because on two fronts, one is everyone is working very, in very close quarters with each other just by the nature of how the plant is set up. And if you space people out, you have to slow down production materially. Uh, and then the second piece is a lot of the people that are, are these workers are generally, it's a first, uh, generally a lot of Im immigrants. It's generally a first generation job. It's a, it's a hard job. And um, these people do, you know, it, I don't, when I visited, I came away just really, um, thankful for my you know ancestors who came here came here as immigrants a long you know long time ago and worked um, trying to make better opportunities for their family but it's a it's a challenging job and a lot of these families live in close quarters outside of the meat packing plant so some people in the industry have said the disease is actually spreading more outside the plant than inside the plant um, so uh, you know when when combined with high levels of cases a lot of these plants are in very rural areas, so you don't want it to get out of control because some of these hospitals don't have, you know, it's not like a New York City hospital with um, a lot of hospital beds and, and things like that. Not necessarily meant to deal with a pandemic 
like this. And um, then, you know, just generally it's been a tight labor force for a while. So it's challenging to get challenging to get labor to a lot of these plans. It's just a, it's a tricky situation. And I don't know of anybody that has planned in their disaster plan for a pandemic. I probably, probably somebody has, but it's definitely a challenge that is, there's not really an easy answer um, mm -hmm. right now. So, you know, we've seen a, a rash of processing plant closures over the last couple of weeks due to, as you mentioned, employee illness from the coronavirus, including Tyson Foods pork processing plant in Iowa on April 22nd, Smithfield Foods pork plant in South Dakota, and a JBS beef plant in Colorado. Uh, so similar to, I asked Blake Haxton last week when we were talking about oil wells, you know, how does the process of shutting a plant work? And secondly, what is done you know, with the protein that's currently at the factory, as well as the protein that's committed to the factory from farmers in the supply chain? Yeah, it's a good question, Doug. The, as far as shutting the plant down, that's probably the easy, the different question, that's probably the easiest one. Essentially what you, they do is they just stop, they stop accepting new hogs, for example, and tell all the workers to go home, essentially, um, and just don't have any new inputs into the processing facility. The, as far as the protein at the factory, a lot, depending on the plant, um, it, it can vary a little bit. Some plants have pretty large freezers that hold significant amounts of meat in them. Um, so it, I guess kind of two parts to that. One is it, sometimes it takes, there's different processes to the pro, there's different steps to the processing process. And some of the um, animals are, you know, you, what you do is you'd stop all the hogs coming in, and then you just basically finish out the production. So mm -hmm. a process of the animals that were already in process, essentially. So maybe you'd stop accepting hogs, then maybe in a day or so, you'd, you'd have worked through all the inventory that was in the, in the processing facility. But you also have um, a lot of inventory that's in the, in the freezer, depending on the, depending on the building and the producer, uh, the processor and all that kind of stuff. So that is still, I'm sure, accessible and can be easily shipped um, via truck to different different places. As far as the latter question that you mentioned is probably the saddest and, and most, most challenging uh, question to deal with is what do you do with the, the protein that people were going to sell to the factory and or to the processing facility and that's where um, it's, there's no really easy answers. So again, this depends. Some producers are more vertically integrated. So they're feeling the pain if they have to close and have their, their hogs, um, you know, not be able to get processed. But then um, you also have smaller farmers. And so it's very much a, you know, pork production, hog is very much a just-in-time process. So you, your older hogs, um, you have them go into the processing facility, then you clean the place where they are, you bring the new hogs in. It's just a, it's very much a kind of step-by-step um, -step process. But what happens if you can't, what are you gonna do with the hogs that are ready to go to the processing facility? You don't know how, how long the plants are gonna close. You have a lot of options, Not, none of them are good. Some, you could maybe try to pay a whole lot more in shipping. 50, 250 pound hogs is, is, is expensive. So you could pay the shipping costs to try and send them to another plant, but everybody else is doing that. And it, it's costly. You could, some people are putting their hogs on something called a stall diet, 
or where you try to feed them something that they'll um, not gain a lot of weight because the more they eat, the more expensive they are. You're paying more and more um, in feed um, to feed a 250-pound hog. You're they eat a lot of food, so you're you know you're you, there's different ways of trying to handle that cost. And um, some people are having to. I mean, it's it's just unpleasant for everybody. I mean, they're having to euthanize, you know, baby pigs, piglets. Some some of them are trying to having to, you know, you might have to kill the older pigs and and go bury them uh, somewhere. Um, it, it's it's the area where, I, in my opinion, I think the government needs to do something. Beef are a little bit cows are a little bit easier to because they can be outside. You don't have to, it's not all inside. You can be outside and you can be. Um, you know, they can, you have a little more space, a little more flexibility, but depending on the protein, it, it's a, it's a very challenging time. And um, it's a, it's a sad, it can be, a, it's a sad, challenging time for a lot of the, the these farmers that were planning on, uh, even in recessions, you could, you know, you could sell your hogs to the packing, packing plant. And um, this is just a really unusual situation. And there's, there's getting to be an increasing backup of live animals and that's not something has is going to have to be done there and and none of the options are good so we've discussed the impact across the united states and in kind of what we've seen in in these plants but we haven't talked on the global impact of the virus on the protein industry and you and i talked about the impact of the african swine fever in our podcast on september 24th and the impact that had on the global food economy and now we have this slowdown due to the coronavirus what are the long-term implications for these disruptions to the industry that, that are kind of, you know, back to back? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. And um, people are going to be talking about this for, for a long time. And there will be, will be implications. It's, I mean, it's hard to know what they'll be. Just, um, you know, at a high level, at a high level, on a company-specific basis, which is generally how we, we view the world on a, on a company-specific basis, Historically, in times like this, generally the the strong get stronger. The com- big the companies with the best balance sheets that are better able to weather the storm will be able to be opportunist- opportunistic and um, take advantage of the current situation to, you know, increase their market share, increase their competitive position. Looking at it as a from a business, but I mean, you also feel for all the people that you know are going to be really damaged by this. There's also a human there's a human cost from this too, but on a, on a company basis, the companies that are most resilient with the best balance sheets and the management teams, they can take advantage of a disruption like this. Likely in five years, this will have been an opportunity where they have uh, widened their moat or increased their competitive advantage. So that's, that's probably one of the few things that I can, my highest degree of confidence of long-term, long-term implications. But you know, the, as far as, you know, bigger picture things, there's a lot of different possibilities. So, um, you know, U.S., we export, you know, a decent percentage of pork and beef and that kind of thing. But um, a lot of countries, if their uh, pr- production drops a lot, they'll likely want to keep that meat in-house as opposed to sending it out outside. So you wonder what this does, you know, to emerging markets or places where there's there's a higher risk of social instability or something like that what happens if you know people can't get protein and um you know what how does that impact you know not just emerging markets but also in the u.s i mean if if there's not meat on the shelves how does that impact 
you know, consumer confidence, consumer comfort, even as, you know, the, the market is obviously rallying a lot and, and there's increasing optimism around the virus. How does that impact that? And that's, I mean, I, I don't really know that. You know, a, a couple other things that could happen, just thinking outside the box is maybe you have, you know, increasing, um, maybe the U.S. builds more warehouses or you have a more of a, a, a bigger reserve if, and I think it probably depends a little bit. I think and probably I should have said this in the beginning. The answer to your question probably is it depends on how severe the shortages are. You know, if this is just a two-week blip and everything's fine, I don't know how much long-term change there will be. But if you go through a three-month period of a significant protein shortage, I think it's highly likely that there, the, the responses would be more. But maybe you have a national, um, you know, pork or beef reserve in, in a warehouse. Maybe you see a shift to plant-based meat that doesn't have some of these same bottlenecks. Maybe you see a shift to other protein to eggs. Egg production is doing fine um, for grocery stores now and, and that kind of thing. So um, there's a lot of different implications from um, macro to consumer, consumer you know, confidence around the world uh, to potentially you know, some companies increasing their competitive advantages. But that just, that's just kind of the first that I guess that come to mind when I, when I hear your question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so last question for you. Uh, the protein industry seems to be headed on this reverse course of what we've seen in the oil industry. Specifically, oil was struck by this dangerous combination of a significant uptick in supply uh, and a drastic drop in demand as everyone's on lockdown and no one's really going out. In the protein industry, we've seen a spike in demand from consumers that are remaining on lockdown, cooking at home, uh, while meat processing, as we've talked about, is is reduced. Um, you mentioned the drop earlier in our conversation in processing protein, but so far, um, I haven't seen a lack of product on the store shelves or at least what's available through Instacart. Um, that's not to say that I'm not stockpiling <laughs> some meat in my freezer downstairs. Uh, but when, if this does continue, I guess I should say, when should we see any kind of a lack of availability on store shelves? The short answer is uh, the U.S. keeps maybe around two weeks of supply of um, protein in cold storage. So we don't have, you know, it's not like we have months and months of supply sitting around. Um, the Americans eat a lot of meat and it's, again, a, a pretty just-in-time process. So, um, so, I mean, if this continues, I would anticipate it not, not very long from now. I mean, I would anticipate you know, if this, you know, if production keeps dropping 30 to, you know, if it drops down to 40 or 50% down year on year and cold storage declines, I wouldn't be surprised to see it in the, in the next week or two, we start seeing less availability. The, the piece of it that is a little bit of a wild card is, um, so some of the processing cuts uh, of meat, people like are more grocery oriented, retail oriented, but then you have a lot of cuts that are uh, restaurant uh, that, that go to restaurants so it's it's a it's a it's a tricky balance because there's some there's there's kind of both food service and grocery and it's it's not always easy to transition and cut up the especially if you don't have any more workers to cut up the cuts that maybe would go to a grocery store to a you know to a mcdonald's what kind of how they mcdonald's would get bacon would be different than a you know, you or I buying bacon in a grocery store, you get, you know, mass buy in bulk type of thing. So there's a little bit of, um, you know, how does the supply chain react to that? If prices go up a lot or there's shortages in the grocery store, how do, you know, this, these restaurant level kind of 
type of product better be able to get transitioned to the, to the store. So there are a lot of different moving pieces, but I would generally say, surprise to see maybe the first early part of May, uh, first or second week of May to start seeing less availability. And um, again, kind of like the, like the toilet paper shortages of March, 2020, uh, if there's a possibility of people really start getting freaked out about it, that, that shortages may accelerate, people may buy, may buy a lot more. Um, but we'll see. And I, I don't think it's a bad idea. I don't think it's a terrible idea if, if you have a little extra freezer space to buy, buy a little bit extra meat, if that's, if that's important, important to you. Yeah, I mean, definitely. There's, there's no downside to doing it and, and plenty of upside if things continue to, to unravel. Um, right. Well, thank you for your time. You've now uh, given me a new name for the month of March in 2020, the great toilet paper shortage. <laughs> um, so I'll be using that from now on. Uh, but thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Micah Martin, uh, Diamond Hills Housing and Consumer Commodities Analyst. I appreciate your time. Um, and hopefully the next time we do one of these, it won't be as, as um, apocalyptic as the last two that we've done between African swine fever and, and this one on the protein industry. Sounds good. Thanks, Doug. Thanks so much. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.